Good morning, Redemption. My name is Jake, one of your pastors, and we are continuing uh, a series going through just some core convictions that we have uh, in our church here, word and spirit, family, culture, all of life. And uh, as we sat through that long reading of the Proverbs 31 woman, a passage that maybe you've heard before, uh, I, want, I wanna ask, we're gonna go through just that, that last section of the excellent wife. And I want you guys to guess which of these categories do you think matches that passage the best? You can throw it out there. I just love it here. Okay, all of life. Word and spirit. Family culture. Some, yeah, someone was scared to say it. Yeah, I, I'm, so I asked uh, this passage, I asked a few women around our office, uh, what comes to mind when you hear Proverbs 31 woman? Uh, and they said, unattainable, not comforting, shame, stressful. <laughs> someone, someone else in our office says, I think of a man telling a wife how she should be and I would roll my eyes and stop listening if my pastor got up and started teaching. Uh, maybe for some of you, uh, the moment this passage was read and then I walked up and you thought, oh no. <clears throat> uh, for other women, it, it is, you know, that I've heard it's been a very important scripture in their discipleship. It's been a, quite honestly, a godly banner for ec- feminine excellence. Uh, and I asked some of the women uh, on our staff what they, think if, what they think men would hear as we read this passage. Uh, and they thought at this point, you're probably already checked out. Uh, an excellent wife, who can find? She's far more precious than jewels. Uh, maybe you hear that as a guy, uh, and maybe you skim to the end if you're reading Proverbs, uh, or some of you leaned in, and you're like, the f- moment I read this, you're like, perfect. This is like the checklist to find my over-idealized girlfriend. <clears throat> uh, so I... I I, I thought it would be really wonderful to meditate on what the Proverbs 31 woman has to teach on all of life, but diving in a little bit deeper on wisdom for all of life. And I'll just tell you, the, get, the get-go, like, I have a couple of prayers that I've been praying for you all, uh, because I didn't come up with this idea. This passage actually blew my mind when I heard a really wise theologian, Al Walters, teach it, uh, and he taught nothing on uh, the good housewife, much to my surprise as a young man. Um, And I I really want for those of you who in the room as women have heard this as this over-idealized checklist that feels exhausting, my prayer is that you would hear this as something that is life-bringing and beautiful. Uh, And for those women who have heard this passage and feel really inspired by it over the years, I really don't want you to hear me dismantling something that's actually been really inspiring, but that this would become of a passage that's more, not less than, the wife passage. Uh, For the men in the room, my prayer is that you would actually pay attention uh, and not just check out because it says wife at the beginning, Uh, because this is so much more than the wife passage. In fact, I wish some godly wise follower of Jesus would have sat me down and read this passage to me when I was a young man and said, Jake, if you don't listen to this woman, if you don't internalize all of what she does and what she stands for, you're gonna walk away from the faith. 
because I did. When I was nine to 10 years old, I remember this uh, children's ministry leader. I don't even remember her name. It's just this, this faint memory. I only remember telling me Jesus died for my sins. And I was so filled with joy that I laughed and cried tears of joy. I don't even know what was happening to me. <laughs> um, and I barely knew anything about the story of God other than that. Uh, but I, I knew Jesus and I, and I loved him. And yet I, from that point on in life, my faith got fainter and fainter and fainter until I really wasn't even calling myself a Christian. So what happened? Well, I never really had any idea until I was in college uh, and an intro to religion uh, class on one of the discussion boards, they posted a comic uh, that was meant to be tongue-in-cheek, kind of making fun a little bit of Christian religion. Can you, can you throw the drawing up there? So it's like a person, I, this is my drawing, it's not the actual comic, the comic was <laughs> clearly better, um, but I couldn't find it, so there you go. Uh, so there's, there's like a little person, he's holding on to a cross, it says, just you and me, Jesus, and every other avenue of life is outside the glass bottle. Uh, and when I saw this, it really clicked for me what was the thing that snuffed out my faith as a young man. And it's, and it's the difficulty of this. If you have to deal with sports, what do you do? You gotta leave the bottle. If you wanna interact with art, you gotta leave the bottle. If you wanna figure out family or as a young man navigate romance and dating or video games or any other avenue of life that is not outwardly what they would call religious in our culture, you have to leave the bottle. And I found myself from nine years old leaving the bottle because no one taught me what the Proverbs 31 woman knew. So I left the bottle over and over again. And what happens if you keep leaving the bottle is eventually you spend all of your life outside of the bottle and you have no faith left. I wish someone would have taught me what the Proverbs 31 woman knew, which is one of the three convictions that is so powerful to our church and it's a huge part of my story. All of life is all for Jesus, which Jim taught a few weeks ago. But in order to live out that vision in the everyday parts of life that are outside of the Bible, outside of the bottle, what do you need? You need wisdom. And the Proverbs 31 woman is by a lot of theologians, the embodiment of wisdom itself that closes out the entire book of Proverbs. And so I wanna break down all of life, all for Jesus, but I wanna hear what the Proverbs 31 woman would say about it. So let's begin with all of life, but I wanna focus on what the Proverbs 31 says about the all part of it. So that first verse, an excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. You know, let's, let's stop there. I, we need to pray. Father, um, yeah, I've, I've, I've given you uh, time to study this 
uh, and, and will do my best to unpack this, but Jesus, you gotta, you gotta be present here in our minds. You gotta be present here and come to us clothed in the scriptures of the Proverbs 31 woman. And so I ask that you would give me the gift to teaching uh, and teaching a passage that has often been misunderstood. Help me do it well, Lord, and especially outside of my ability. Amen. Okay, now we're ready. An excellent wife, who can find? She's more precious than jewels. Quick, when you think of an excellent wife, what comes to mind? Oh, 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 wow, okay. I hope she's in this service. If not, I'm gonna tell her. Um, so as a young man, my mother forced me to read through the whole Bible before she would sign off on my driver's license. And so I read the book of Proverbs and I loved it because it's so practical. Um, and there's lots of good advice, but when I got to the end of it, I read An Excellent Wife Who Can Find. I just skimmed to the end and went to the next book. Um, understandably so, because I will never be a wife. So moving right along. But the first person to introduce me to the excellent wife was an old man named Al Walters. He's this master theologian who anytime that he taught, he's a real old guy. He has this, we always make fun of him in class. He's got a fanny pack and we'd always be like, what? It was before fanny packs were cool too. So we'd always be like, what's in the fanny pack? And that doesn't illustrate anything. It's just making a joke about my professor. Uh, but he began to unpack what the phrase meant, excellent wife. In Hebrew, the phrase is eshit hayel, uh, all the ladies in the room say, a shit tael. Good job. Some of you are like, can we say that in here? Um, in Hebrew, a shit tael is the word for wife, yes, but uh, we'll see later, she's definitely a wife, but it's also the word for just woman, right? Uh, ish is man, ishit is woman. And hail in the scriptures can mean strength, mighty, valiant, uh, wealth. It's most often a word used to describe the might of military force. Interestingly enough, uh, if you say gibor hail in, in Hebrew, you don't even remember these words, but it'll paint the picture. It means man of mighty valor. It's the Old Testament version when they talk about David's mighty warriors they are the male version of this. So this phrase is the female version of the mighty men of valor. Okay, so, and this is not, the, not just in, within this word, but if you look at, interestingly enough, the poem that we just had read, it takes a lot of time to describe the woman's physical strength. Verse 17 and verse 25 and verse 29, it describes her as done excellently, but that phrase is most often used of someone going out to war and prevailing in strength. So my professor first taught me that this, the better way to translate this would be the valiant woman. She is a wife, but as you see in this passage, that's not the only thing she is. In Hebrew, 
And, and, and I don't want you to hear these phrases and be like, oh man, we can't trust the Bible. It's, it's one of those things where to get the rhyming of poetry, it helps to bring out some of this language. A, a handful of scholars note that in verse 19, right, it's like the, she puts her hand to the distaff and her hands to the spindle, like she's doing like sewing work, right? And, and that could be misrepresented in a lot of ways, depending how you may have heard this in the past, but a lot of scholars will note that when it talks about her reaching for the spindle, that phrase is used elsewhere of jail reaching for the tent peg to hammer it into the head of Sisera in Judges. Why would you tell a passage about the excellent wife and go out of your way to describe her as this mighty, valiant warrior? Well, a whole ton of theologians from Al Walters to Craig Bartholomew and others would say that the best thing that we have that's closest to this poem is either the Song of Deborah in the book of Judges or in Exodus where it celebrates in the Song of Moses that God is the mighty man of war who goes out to conquer the Egyptians. Craig Bartholomew says that Valiance is much more appropriate translation suggesting that this woman, worthy of masculine, godlike praise, is really something to see. Short version, pay attention to her. If you read that out of context, a valiant woman, who can find? It's gonna sound like good wives are just hard to come by. But if you read it in the context of the entire book of Proverbs, where over and over we are told, do anything to find wisdom. Sell everything for her. Pursue it any way that you can. You need to get wisdom over and over and over again. And wisdom over and over in Proverbs is personified as a woman, as lady wisdom. It begins to make sense that the book would end with the personification of living wisdom as a woman. She is the hero, the mighty warrior of all of life, all for Jesus. The valiant woman who embodies in the flesh what wisdom for all of us looks like. I hope at this point you're beginning to catch on that this will say many things about what it might mean to be a good and excellent wife, but it says just as many excellent things about what it means to a good and excellent husband and single man and child and any person that belongs to the family of God to truncate it to one portion of people would be the same thing as to take the whole book of Proverbs and since it is addressed from a father to a son, assume unless you're a young boy, it doesn't apply to you. She is the hero of all of life, all for Jesus. And so her mighty deeds then, if, you know, if we're to see her as a valiant woman, what are her mighty deeds? And if she is supposed to be like this mighty warrior, what is her battlefield? These verses here are actually an acrostic poem. Every verse begins with a new verb from another letter in Hebrew. So it is literally the A through Z of living wisdom. And it is filled with action, like a lot of action. There's only two adjectives in the whole poem, and they are not describing her, they're describing the things she makes. 
So she is on the move. So she is a good wife in verse 11, as we see. But in verse 13, she's working with her hands like a wise craftsman. In verse 14, she's doing international trade. In verse 15, she's cooking and feeding like a master chef. 16, she's buying land, managing a vineyard like a real estate manager and a winemaker. 17, she's dressing herself with strength like a fitness trainer. In in 19, she's weaving fabric like an artisan and a craftsman and master of the creative arts. She's an advocate for the poor. She cares for her house like an interior designer. She brings honor to the community, counsel like a brilliant therapist. If you hear that long list, and guys, you're starting to be like, who could do all this? Well, now you're welcome into the club that a lot of women hearing this passage before have felt, (laughs) which is going to be part of the point, but I want you to hold that tension right now. We're not going to alleviate it yet. We need to hear a bit more of the history of interpretation because so much of this passage has gotten tricky because a lot of the times when you get through all of this very everyday stuff and you get to the end and it says, she is a woman who fears the Lord, clearly a godly religious thing then how does that make sense of these mundane things? And so there's two main ways that people have gone historically. Either they allegorize the entire front end. Okay, it doesn't mean she's really being a seamstress because that's not really religious activity. This is a metaphor for the church and she's doing more uh, religious type things. It's just this picture. The other way of translation has been to over-literalize it and focus it in on as if one woman is supposed to do the entirety of this work. But both of those fail to begin to ask, how does this fit into the entire book of scripture and Proverbs? And also, before we ever ask, what might this say to us today? We have to ask, what does this say to God's people back then? Back then, Proverbs was a book that shaped God's people of Israel to live wisely. How were they to live in such a way that would be so attractive that as the average Israelite was walking around doing day-to-day life, one of the Canaanites or Egyptians or other people would walk alongside them and go, man, the way that you're living is so brilliant, so beautiful, so attractive. Who taught you to be like that? Oh, it was God. And you guys have a different vision for friendship. How did you get that? Well, it's actually something called wisdom. Let it teach you about the God who brought. So that is what Proverbs was meant to do. They were meant to be a light to the nations and the most attractive way they would be is living day-to-day life. That is what it meant when they heard it then. So what might it mean to us now? If you asked the valorous woman, what she thought about the phrase all of life for Jesus. And you began to ask her, uh, what about creative arts? Does that have something to do with God? I think she would look at you and she would say all of life. If you asked her, what about diaper changing? Or uh, when I email back my sales team Monday morning for the update, I think she'd look at you and she'd say all of life. Okay, well, what about international trades and entertainment? What about if I take a break to play video games on the weekend? Or what about when I'm kissing the girl that I'm dating or I make jokes with my roommate or when I cook mac and cheese? I think the valiant woman would look at you and say, all of life is all for God. Every square inch of it. 
This is something that I did not know as a young man. And what happens is then I had to go figure out the rest of life on my own. No one gave me what Jesus had to do with relationships and my parents' divorce, so I had to figure it out on my own. And no one told me that God could have anything to do with wrestling as a young guy just trying to get into sports or with friendship or with dating or with video games or with any of the day-to-day things that I spent my life. Nobody walked me through the Proverbs 31 woman and said, look at how she lives out every square inch of life as it belongs to God. Because that would have immediately made me wrestle through what God had to do with all of these things. It would have demanded that I would live out with wisdom in all these areas. So how do we know that all of life belongs to God? Well, the Proverbs 31 woman shows us. She steps out into every field of every life and says, this belongs to God. Because if it doesn't, who does it belong to? You? Culture? Another religion or philosophy? It has to belong to someone. And so she would step in and say, this matters to God. This belongs to God. And I think that she dismantles two lies that we believe within our culture. The first lie is the lie of the bottle. It's the lie that I believed as a kid. You saw the picture. You could throw it back up there, the picture of the bottle. My great picture. Should have my wife draw this. She's an artist. Um, the lie of the bottle is another way you could say the secular sacred divide. It is a lie that our culture paints that says there are certain things that belong in the sphere of sacred and religious, and then everything else goes out here. What do you think the, the valiant woman would say? I think she would come in and smash the bottle. I think that's what she does with the life that she lives. She smashes that bottle and she goes, every square inch of life is a part of life that is meant to live out wisely before the face of God, to seek him and to listen to him. The second lie is the lie of futility. Now, some of you may, this might be like, I've never heard something like this. Some of you have been around long enough at our church to already hear that phrase, all of life, all for Jesus. And you genuinely like know in some way that every part of life does belong to God. But you need the valiant woman because you have forgotten. You've forgotten that the main areas of following Jesus, just based off of time, are not when you walk in this sanctuary or even when you necessarily open up your Bible for a moment in the morning. But they are when you change a diaper, write an email, when you go on a date, when you do yard work, when you fight with a roommate over dishes, you have forgotten. And because you have forgotten, you feel futility. Like, does this really matter? When I'm at work and I'm dealing with the stress of knowing that my boss is gonna say something that's gonna belittle me and I'm just trying to do like the mundane things to just get by, you have forgotten the voice of the valiant woman that says this matters to God and he, he has put you exactly where he wants you to be. That there is not some area of life that is gonna make you feel more connected to the holiness of God and like you are participating in the life that he is meant to give you. 
The valiant woman, the reason it's A through Z in this, this expanse of all these things is it's supposed to be exhaustive, right? It's supposed to be not a checklist, but it's supposed to be this broad like stroke of paint to show every area of life is a life that could be engaged with God in wisdom and in worship. Without the valiant woman speaking in our ear, it's hard to see how your work as an engineer matters when you spend a whole day doing emails. Or it's really hard to see how being stuck at home with a sick kid in isolation is contributing to the kingdom of God. The valiant woman would speak otherwise. That is why we need her to shatter the bottle, to step into every area of life, and to say, this belongs to God. So we've seen how the, the valiant woman is the hero of the all part of all of life, all for Jesus. She really means it. She really means that every single part of life is meant to belong in worship to her God. She embodies the all part of that statement. Okay, Jake, we get it. Every part of life is God's. Even changing diapers and wiping poop off of our babies and doing emails, got it, got it, got it. Like, that doesn't help me live in a way that feels like that. How? How can we get beyond the imaginations from the stage of this part connects to God? How can we live out all of life all for Jesus? What drives the valiant woman to engaging in all of these areas? What's, what's her secret? What's her power? What well does she draw from as she steps into the quote unquote mundane? Now I wanna see what she might say about the all for Jesus part. In the very end of the, the poem, in verse 30, it says, charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. What's the secret to wisdom in every area of life? Fear. Fear is the secret. Fear is her power. It's the key to wisdom for all of life, fear. And as a common phrase in Christianity, as we have heard this before, like fear of the Lord or fear of God, this was a bit hard for me to hear first as a Christian because I grew up with men who flew off the handle in anger and I have memories of people who use their power to lord it over you in terror and in threats. So when I hear fear the Lord, uh, I felt scared to like raise my hand and ask like, is God like an anger consumed dad that can fly off the handle for any reason at any moment? Because that's what he sounds like. Am I to live in terror at this unpredictable and powerful deity? Is that what this is saying? How does that even reconcile with Jesus, the God of love? My confusion makes sense because if that is what fear is, it doesn't really match the valiant woman and how she acts, does it? It goes out of the way to even describe how she laughs at the day to come. <laughs> she is not scared for the snow that would come, the storms that would come on her out. She is the opposite of this anxious like terror. So what does this fear of the Lord actually mean? If it doesn't mean that, what does it mean? So we need two resets to the phrase fear of the Lord. And the first is in the word fear itself. Because there's a good part to fear, right? 
We may not initially think that within our culture, filled with anxiety and panic, but there's a good part to fear. Let me prove it to you by asking you a silly question. Is fire angry at you? Does it have a personal vendetta towards you as a person? (laughs) Yet all of human history, how much life has fire brought in food and in warmth, even the magic of sitting at a campfire, right? But you don't reach in and grab a log, Fear keeps you from doing that. Second question, does water hate you? Just doesn't like you at all? No, water gives you life. Imagine what water is to you on a day of working out in the yard in 110 heat in Phoenix. But the scuba diver fears water enough to not pull his mask off when he's 100 meters down. Fear. Is air abusive? No, it doesn't pick on you to give it satisfaction of being strong, but I mean, imagine your day without air. You can't because you need air for your brain to function and imagine anything. The Hebrew word for fear can mean afraid, yes, but it also means to revere, to show profound respect, to venerate, to see something is awesome to give status and honor and authority. Fear is what makes weddings so special. It makes the best man hold those wedding rings and go like, I'm not gonna let this go. And it's the fear that keeps uh, the maid of honor from interrupting the sermonette. Both of them know, though this day is filled with joy and celebration, it's not about them. That is what fear means in fear of the Lord. Fear is a good thing, but fear gets all the attention in that phrase. It's not the key word. It's not the focal point. Yahweh is. And you might look down in your scriptures and be like, where's Yahweh? But in our English Bibles, anytime you see Lord, but it's capital L-O-R-D, it's the translator's quick hand of showing the personal name for God that was revealed to Moses in the Exodus, Yahweh. That is more important than fear because it brings to mind the God who rescued his people from slavery, the God who redeemed a nation out of oppressive rulers and gave them an identity as a people at Mount Sinai. What it brings to mind for the valiant woman is the story of Exodus, but for us, it brings to another moment in history. Jesus, his death and his resurrection. Fear of the Lord is to remember and call to mind the story we actually belong in. It's to remember that as we change those diapers, this little baby belongs not to me, but to God. Fear of the Lord when we wake up on Monday morning and we try to prepare our lesson plan in underfunded teaching departments and we try to get the kids to listen is to remember that the brains in those children belong to God Almighty. But it's also to remember the Jesus that has reconciled heaven and earth together and one day will make it so that education has no pain points and right now I can live as a teacher in demonstration one day This is what it will be like to learn in the kingdom of God. That is what fear is meant to be when we are reminded it is a fear of God who revealed himself in Jesus. 
This is what actually brought me back to the faith, guys. It was finally getting to see wisdom lived out like the valiant woman when I came to this church. You wanna know ultimately remedied the bottle version of my faith? It was you. I came to this church when I was 19 years old and I asked a man who was discipling me named Ricardo, can you teach me the gospel? Can you teach me about theology? And he invited me to his house to pull weeds, talk about our dad wounds, and then he brought me to Costco and I watched him be a dad. All of it belongs to God. And that blew my mind. No one ever taught me that Christianity was so expansive. Nobody ever told me that the vision that Jesus paints for the world includes everything. And suddenly all the questions, all the doubts, all that I had got soaked up into this vision that the valiant woman would have painted for me long ago if I had just listened to her. Please hear me, do not be like young Jake. Don't listen to the lies that there are some things that belong to Jesus and other things don't. Be like the valiant woman. But if you're reading through this and you go through the passage and you begin to have that feeling of like, this is a long list (laughs) and she is really, really good at it. Then you're feeling some of the tension that I think is meant to be felt by this passage because we as Americans read the scriptures individualistically whereas the Hebrews often read it communally. So we're forced to ask the question, could anybody actually satisfy this list? Who could live up to this? Who on earth could be a stay-at-home dad or mom, a business owner, master craftsman, international trade expert, church-leading counselor, artist with time for their craft, also while having some good time for rest and actually sleeping? Like, who could actually do all of this? Has any human being in history lived up to the insane standard of life that the valiant woman has lived? Yes. One person. One person, just one. His name was Jesus. He lived out every single part of his life as if it belonged to God. He lived out the mundane, normal parts of life that we would call it so much that when he started preaching, everyone was like, isn't this that random guy who's like Joseph's stepkid and like it's connected to me? He's like, a, he's like, what does he do? He's like a craftsman or something like that. And we don't, the gospel writers didn't even give us all that stuff because it was so normal and beautiful that way. He lived it out in how he taught. Think about all his illustrations. Everything he teaches is based off of normal life. And so that is what we see, that Jesus is the fulfillment of this more than any single human being could ever be. But he also, when he resurrects from the dead, he has a new body on earth, the bride of Christ. And so we live out this, but we need all of us. We need all of us to live out all the wide expanse of all of life together. And that is what the valiant woman calls us to, a fear of God that makes us go out into this world and say every part of life belongs to Jesus. But we do it together. We do it empowered by his spirit. We live out all of life 
all for Jesus with a reverent awe that every inch of life belongs to the God who made it and is redeeming all of it. And so I I want us to close with this last image as we come to the table today and we eat from the bread and we drink from the wine. This is a symbol that I think is so beautiful because Jesus is taking the most mundane, everyday food that everyone ate back in the day. Every meal had bread. Every meal had wine. And he takes those and he goes, these are the things that I want you to do constantly together to remind you that you belong to me, that I died for you, and that I am making a new humanity a new family that is then to go out into the world and live out every bit of life as if it belongs to me. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the wisdom that has come from the valiant woman in the book of Proverbs. I pray that we might listen to this picture and that we might see that you have a vision for life that sees every inch of it as holy and good and worthy of seeking wisdom in. God, take the few loaves that I have offered in preaching this word and would you expound it and make it so that it would lead your people to love you more, Jesus, to have a vision for life that brings them into awe of you. I pray, God, that you would uh, illuminate to each of us what parts of our lives, Lord, we may not have seen as worthy of sacred worship and honor in our lives and that we might be inspired to love in all of them. Amen.